Theology always liberates us from old religious thinking. When we have the correct theology, it will set us free from that old religious thinking. And so too often people judge the thoughts of God and his ways by their own standards. A lot of times that's what happens to us. We tend to say, oh, well, you know, here's how I see it. Here's how I see it. And so I think we should do it this way when the Bible might just lay it out clearly and plainly and real simple and just say, no, it's a no. Just say no. Or just stand up take a stand. Have you ever had an idea about God and His nature and then realize you were wrong once you opened up the Bible and started reading? The enemy is always actively trying to pervert and distort the image of God in our minds. And this is why we need to continually wash over our minds and renew them in the Word of God daily. We get enough negative and false ideas from our own flesh, the influence of the world and those around us. So the only way to stay grounded in the truth is to wash away those lies with the truth of God's Word. If you're not regularly making time to read God's Word, change that habit today. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4 with today's edition of Come Alive. Ishbosheth trusted in the wrong power. Look at verse 2. It says, Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of the troops. The name of one was uh, Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, and the sons of Rimon and the Berethite of the children of Benjamin, for Berith was also part of Benjamin. So this tells where these two guys came from. Verse 3, because the Berethites fled to Gideon, and they've been sojourners there until this day. So we get a little history lesson here of these guys. Ishbosheth here is not called king again by his or by his own name. It's just called Saul's son, and the emphasis is to say that these men were from the tribe of Benjamin, that there was still, and it might be able to, it, it might be telling us this just so it can show us that there's friction within the house of Saul. Verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, And his nurse had took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and he became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And so here, you know, you're kind of getting like these little summary portions uh, of of what's going on and what had taken place. And so um, we're going to focus more on Mephibosheth in in chapter 9. We're going to find out what his real name was and why he was renamed. But the nurse probably thought, and the reason you got this little... um, portion here is the nurse probably thought that as um, Saul had died and Jonathan had died that once the Philistines were coming to attack or even David was coming to attack that they would take the son and and probably kill him because he would be in in the line of Saul and we know and she probably didn't know but you and I know that David would have never hurt any of Saul's children or grandchildren especially Jonathan's and so she takes up this little boy she runs she accidentally drops him and breaks his ankles or his feet, and now he can't walk anymore. So it causes him to be a little lame. Verse 5, it says, And then the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab and Baana, set out and came about 
the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was laying on his bed at noon. And this is where it gets really good. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. And for when they came into the house, he was laying on his bed in his bedroom. And then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head and we're all night escaping through the plane. So here, I mean, you think like, wow, you know, this is just kind of a, and I remember when I first, the first time I ever read this, I was like, man, this is just like somebody took stuff and just plopped it down here. Like they were like, all right, what do we do with this verse? Well, you know, let's stick it in chapter four. What about this one? We'll put that in chapter four. It really doesn't flow like a, a, a chapter would, but again, in these times, you see that this guy's taking a nap. And he's, he's laying down, and it was a noonday nap, and that was very common for this, for this area. It's common in a lot of areas. In Africa, man, at about 1130, everything stops, and people just start laying down, taking naps, looking for a shade, and, and um, they'll be, some businesses continue to work, but a lot of things just stop. And then about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, people get up, and they start working again late into the night. But here... Um, what they do is they would take a nap. And so these captains who are supposed to be loyal show up with some time to kill, basically. And they do. It's a real dilemma um, that will show you who you, your real friends are. You know, when, when we go through a real tough time, you know, and, and I say this to a lot of my friends when they're like, man, I'm going through the toughest times and I'm losing friends here and there. And I'm like, good, man, because you're going to really find out who your good friends really are uh, when you go through a hard time in life. And so, you know, you'll find out who's going to jump ship and who's going to side with the other and who's going to play both sides. And then you'll also find out who's really there to stick it out with you, whether you're right or wrong. You know, maybe that friend is like, hey, you're totally wrong in this, but I'm still your friend. I'm I'm just going to let you know you're wrong, but I'm here with you. And I'm not going to wait till you to turn around to stab you in the back or in this case, stab you in the stomach when you take a nap. And so what motivates a friendship? And, you know, that's, that's a question here that, that I like to always ask myself. What motivates the friendships that I have? Well, what's the motivating factor in these things? Is, is it like Judas and Jesus? You know, you think about that. That's kind of the same thing here. Once Judas found out that Jesus wasn't going to be that political king, well, he takes off and he goes to the other side. He, 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 he sells Jesus out. And so many people will follow Jesus so they can get something. You know, you, you hear this all the time. You turn on the television and uh, you follow Jesus. You'll get this, 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 and this. Put your hand on the TV and let me send me $500. I'll send you a handkerchief, and that's going to make you rich. And it's like, well, it really won't. And so people are motivated by money. It's like the guy who has a hard time waking up for his quiet time but never has a tough time getting up for work. Uh, the motivation there is money. There's security in that job, but yet we tend to forget that the real power comes from the Lord. And so, again, people will follow Jesus because, again, and pray, asking for material blessings all the time. Hey, Lord, can I get this? And can I get that? And you know what? If I have more quiet time, he'll probably most likely give me more of. And so the motivation would be wrong in that sense. They deny him as their king. They deny Jesus as their king when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of things when life gets tough. And so it happened to Peter. Remember, it wasn't until the rooster crowed that Peter had realized, oh, I denied my king. Uh, I, he was motivated by something there that was called fear. And fear doesn't allow you to make really good decisions. So where is our loyalty? Well, what causes you to be loyal? 
whether it's to a friend or to your Lord, what, what is the motivation there for you? And look at verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to their king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who saw your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. Well, again, knowing David and seeing this last time, this is not a good thing for these two guys, especially from what happened before. Oh, remember when Saul and Jonathan were killed and this guy says, well, you know, Saul had asked me to run him through and so I killed him. And what's David do? David kills that guy. You're not to touch the Lord's anointed. So these guys saw in this act of killing Ishbosheth as a divine act. They probably thought, well, we'll just help things along a little faster. We'll get David into kingship a little quicker. We'll get him onto his throne a lot faster and we'll go ahead and we'll just take this guy out through trickery. And so they also thought a reward would be given. And so what some people will do for money. I'm always amazed at what people will do for money. And you might think horrible acts like prostitution or stealing and things like that. But I'm thinking like, you know, what do you do for money? Are you willing when your boss says, hey, you're not allowed to have a Bible on your desk to take that Bible off and hide it? I just want to be respectful of the workplace. Or when they say, hey, you know, we it's not Merry Christmas, it's Happy Holidays. Or maybe not witnessing at the drinking fountain or on break. Because, again, it could affect your money. Well, what are you willing to do for money? Well, we have some Christmas cards. I shouldn't say Christmas cards. We ordered some for our business, and they have a cute little snowman on it. It says, Happy Holidays, or Season's Greetings. No, Happy Holidays. And so I crossed through all the Happy Holidays, and I wrote Merry Christmas. And on the envelope, it says Happy Holidays. It's got a nice little picture on the outside, and I crossed through that and wrote Merry Christmas. And I sent it out to different places. And one of the guys yesterday or the day before, on Friday, I went to go purchase some stuff for a job we had to do. And he goes, hey, man, I got your Christmas card. He goes, I think it's amazing that you crossed out Happy Holidays and you wrote Merry Christmas. And I was like, why is that so amazing? I go, it is Christmas. I was like, my, they didn't, I didn't have a choice for a Merry Christmas card. And I'd let the company know that we ordered them from. I was like, I'd like to have one that says Merry Christmas. And they're like, well, that could be offensive to someone if some of your customers are Muslim. And I'm like, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about offending anyone. It's, it's my holiday. It's the way I celebrate. They don't ever have a problem if they work for me asking if they can have a week off for Ramadan. That, that's offensive to me. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. And what should it matter? And so what do we do for money? Are we willing to back down a little? Because doesn't the Bible tell us a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And if we're a bunch of lumps, then be careful what you do a little bit of for the sake of job security. It's who we are. And if you can't take a stand, you're going to see what's going to happen because Ishbosheth couldn't really take a stand. He, he depended on man. He depended on something outside of God. And he wound up, well, he died anyway, and not in a great way. And so what happens here, again, what some people would do for money, what some people would do to destroy a life. It seems people spend more time trying to advance in their jobs, which equals more money than trying to advance in their marriage. Or more effort goes into getting the best job than having the best walk. 
the best walk. So what will you do for security? What about eternal security? What have you done to invest in that? And that would be my question today. What have we done to invest in that? As we go to the communion table, ask yourself, Lord, what am I doing? Am I, am I allowing a little leaven in? Am I relying upon outside things for security rather than trusting wholeheartedly in you for everything that I have? Look at verse 9. It says, but David answered, Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerthite. I don't know why they always have to tell us the same info. But anyway, and it said to them, as the Lord lives who this day redeemed my life from all adversity. Verse 10, when someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I'd rested him and I had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So David's obviously saying, and I know you guys are doing the same thing. You know, it's kind of like David saying, hey, man, you know, I was born at night, but not last night. And so these guys are wanting a reward for this. And, you know, know, I think a lot of us are like, well, isn't it just kind of weird that these people back then would just walk around carrying heads, you know, just maybe in a bucket or in 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 a towel or something? It wasn't kind of freaky to David because if you think about it, he rode a head around, giant head, actually, around. And so it was just, it just seemed like it was common. Asa and I were watching Braveheart the other day, and he thought it was really cool when they cut off this dude's head. And I just thought, well, I'm going to take a temperature and a pulse and let him see. Then they pulled his head out of a bucket, and it was a statement. You know, it was this guy's uh, nephew or something, and it really upset him because he's like, wow, they sacked York. And so back in those days and ancient of time, you sent a message when you carried around someone else's head. You know, hopefully none of those. I like Twitter and Facebook if I need to get a message across. But, you know, those are better. And Facebook is still has a face, so book. Anyway, here we see a contrast between David and the two murderers. The two murderers claim that they did it for, and they kind of use, you know, uh, that spiritual lingo, Christianese or whatever you want. They claimed that they were doing the Lord's work. They use this spiritual language to describe a despicable action. And so correct theology always liberates us from old religious thinking. When we have the correct theology, it will set us free from that old religious thinking. And so too often people judge the thoughts of God and his ways by their own standards. A lot of times that's what happens to us. We tend to say, oh, well, you know, Here's how I see it. Here's how I see it. And so I think we should do it this way when the Bible might just lay it out clearly and plainly and real simple and just say, no, it's a no. Just say no. Or just stand up and take a stand. You don't have to weasel around anything. You don't have to intertwine anything. You don't have to fix it. Just do what it says. And so these two thought that David would be pleased to see the severed head of Ishbosheth, and they underestimated David's loyalty, well, to God. In the house of Saul, because David again knew that, hey, this is one of Saul's kids. He was loyal to his pledge in uh, 1 Samuel 24. Uh, David had made a pledge to honor and preserve Saul's family. So David was one of those guys he'd let his yes be yes and his no, no. David was used to seeing severed heads again because he'd carried around Goliath as a trophy. But David knew that Saul and his descendants were not his enemy, though Saul was David's enemy. David wasn't Saul's enemy, and he and he knew that. He knew that it was that it was Goliath that was his enemy. 
And that's why he had severed his head. Even though Ishbosheth was not the Lord's anointed in the same sense as Saul was, David had thoroughly learned to let God take vengeance. And so that's one of those things. Have we learned that? Have we learned to allow God to, to handle the matter at hand? He may tell you to do it a certain way, then do it. But have we learned to allow God to handle that? Or we just take matters into our own hands and say, well, I'm just going to do it this way. And you wind up like, oh, man, now I got to you know, feel horrible for this. I mean, how often does that happen? And if it doesn't, we need to slow down and take a step back and be like David. Say, Lord, you know, here's the situation. And you might be thinking, well, he knows it. But it's still good to give him the situation, your point of view of the situation. And to say, you know, I, I need help in discerning how to handle this. I, I need direction. I need correction if I'm wrong. I need to be the one to change if it's me. And if we're willing to do that, then you might see a different outcome. See, David would not accept their evil deed. Even though it seemed to serve a, a good purpose, unifying Israel under one king, David's reign as king, but while it's true that God overrules all the doings of men and compels them to ultimately serve his purposes... It is equally true that no servant of his can ever consent to do evil that good may come from it. So that doesn't mean that you do something bad so something good will come from it. Or maybe you lie about something so people will believe this more and turn and and give their life to the Lord. Doing evil so something good will come from it is not the way to do it. It's an attesting truth that our Lord in these days of his earthly life would not accept the testimony of demons right? He, he didn't want that, and neither should we. We shouldn't want the testimony of demons, something bad, saying, yeah, well, it's going to turn it into something good. It's an, an arresting truth, and so we, we need to understand that. David commanded his young men to execute these guys off with their heads. You know, he's, he's, he's standing there going, they're, they're just unbelievable. Why would these guys do that to this guy? And so he made a, an example of these murderous men They were not soldiers fighting together with him. They were murderers who deserved a just punishment. And so David has them beheaded. And David makes a bold statement by this act of justice. He showed that to all Israel that he was the decided enemy to the destruction of Saul's family. Anyone that would come against Saul's family, that no one could lift up their hands against any of them without meeting uh, punishment, justice. And so David, being a man of his word, kept his word and these guys wound up being executed and you know it's just one of those things when you think about it and and I was reading something about this beheading that David does here they would take these heads and take it to the pool of at Hebron where all the public could see you know they didn't have CNN back then or some kind of news you know like we got to see um, Saddam Hussein's execution somewhat and so we, we don't have those. But and so what they would do to make a bold public statement, they would take these heads and they'd take them to a very public place. And so David acted with strict justice in this case, not only to prove to the people that he had neither commanded nor approved of the murder, but from a heartfelt, just like a cry of his heart that, that such crimes would take place against Saul's family. And so to keep his conscience void of offense towards God and towards man, he executes these guys. He comes forth with quick justice. And so, you know, as I said today, we're going to have communion and and I want you guys to come up. And so one of the things I want you guys to think about are the questions, you know, what are you, what are you finding security in? Where is your security really truly found? I mean, if you had to ask yourself that, 
and be very truthful because God knows. So don't try to trick him. But if it's in something other, then just repent of it and then come up and grab your juice and your cracker and we'll all take together. What do you find security in? And it's not the, I'm not saying that, oh, everybody should quit their jobs and just hang out and trust and we have a big hippie commune or something like that. I'm not saying that at all. We need our jobs. But are, are we secure in knowing that it was the Lord that provided them? And if he's called us to that place, that, you know, again, it goes back to John 20, 21, where it says, I send you as my father sent me. Or as my father sent me, I send you. That's a correct way to say it. And you're sent. You and I as Christians are sent. We're on a mission. You don't have to go over there for mission. It's where you're at. And so we see this because of the security that we have. And if God has placed you where you're at, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your school, wherever you're at, are you doing his work? And it's not to say that every day you got to get up with the stress of like, oh man, I got to I got to share the gospel. No, enjoy where you're at. Enjoy what you do. But when the Lord says, hey, that person over there, they may need to hear how you came to faith. Or, hey, that person over there, you know, they're just having a rough time. Maybe you could go pray for them. Maybe you could do what I would do, you know, in that little bracelet, WWJD. What would Jesus do? You know, and, and, and not to just bring that cliche back, but to say, hey, you know, what would he do? What, how would he react in this situation and where I'm at? How would he treat these people? And so I think Jesus is raising up and calling us to be his church. Uh, the church is an expression of Christianity uh, that shines his light before people in such a way that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven, who are called to speak truth and love in order to reach people. And it may be that we have to tell somebody the truth. Hey, man, that's not the right way. That's not the way to do things. Here's the right way. Based off of what I believe and what the Bible says, here's the right way to do it. And just take that stand and trust and be secure that the Lord's going to take care of you instead of, oh, man, my boss is really going to get upset if this guy winds up being a Christian. Hey, it might actually do the company some good. You know, hopefully that they're real Christians and that they display that real Christian attitude, that they have that love for one another and that they have that care. It goes back to people always saying, you know, hey, you know, my kid, I want him to be a good student. Well, are they a good Christian? If they're a good Christian, they're going to be a good student. If you're a good Christian, you're going to be a good employee. If your boss is a Christian, he's going to be a good employer. If he's truly a Christian, living out what the word says. If we take a stand, if we put trust in God and we fully trust in him, then our security will lie in him. King David's story didn't end when he ascended the throne. He had finally achieved the promise God gave him, but his time on earth was far from concluded. He had to raise his family, lead a nation, conquer the enemy, and continue to rely on his creator to sustain him. David didn't always do this with the grace and perfection we'd assume from a man after God's own heart. In fact, he frequently failed, giving in to temporary pleasures, neglecting what God had for him to do. Every time, though, David came back to his creator, He repented of his sins and renewed his commitment to God. God's forgiveness was real and available for David, and it is for you today, too. Have you been afraid to come to God because of your life choices? He wants to hear from you. He sees your heart and already knows of your sins and is waiting to offer you forgiveness if you ask. 
Tracy's here to tell you more about this. Are you ready to meet Jesus and have your sins forgiven? We would be honored to be the ones to tell you about God's Son, who came to earth to pay the price for you and every person on earth. That price is death. But because Jesus died, you have the chance to live. Give us a call so we can tell you more. Our number is 281-391-5503. Thanks, Tracy. We are so glad you joined us today, and we hope you'll tune in again to Come Alive.